Welcome to So You Want to Move to the Country and Raise Goats. This is a podcast about change. Change is all around us, and sometimes we're ready for it, and sometimes we're not. When it overwhelms us, well, we just want to move to the country and raise goats. This podcast features stories from people who have gone through change. We hope that their insights will help you better understand and deal with the changes in your life. I'm Peggy Koenig, and along with my co-host, Catherine Greiva, we chat with insightful people with interesting change stories. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Our guest today is Leslie Bennett, and Leslie is a partner with Mental Health Innovations, focused on supporting organizations that prioritize workplace mental health. Leslie has had a personal journey with her own mental health and has asked that we let our listeners know that this conversation may be confronting or challenging for some. Leslie was diagnosed with a bipolar disorder in her 20s, and she describes a very painful period of her life where the decisions she was making weren't healthy or safe. Shame, isolation, and aloneness came with her diagnosis. In 2007, Leslie made a life-changing decision to be open about her experience living with bipolar disorder. She now speaks and writes about her journey through her mental health blog. Leslie talks about the importance of self-care, including sleep, nutrition, exercise, and even what she watches on TV. Self-care changes for Leslie based on what's going on in her life. Leslie Bennett is our guest today, and Leslie is a partner with Mental Health Innovations. And Leslie joins us from her home office in Sydney, British Columbia on Vancouver Island. And let's start with that change, because you just moved to Sydney from Toronto, Ontario, what, in May of this year? That's right. That's right. We moved out in May. We had lived in Toronto for over 20 years in the same condominium at uh, Queen and Woodbine, and um, there was an opportunity for us to move here, and so we did in May. So what's that like, moving from the big city to Sydney? Yeah, well, um, so I have a little bit of experience on Vancouver Island. My in-laws are here, so I've been visiting for the last uh, 20 years or so, um, but never lived here. And so moving to an island is a very different experience than being in the city. There's a especially in a rural town. So um, we're about 25 minutes from Victoria, which means, I mean, it's really nothing. If you think about a Toronto city map, you can go 25 minutes within the city. It doesn't, you know, you're not going anywhere except for being in Toronto. But the, so I would, I would say that that's uh, a pretty big change in terms of um, where things are, how small the town is. There's 11,000 people here. I think Toronto was over 5 million. So um, lots of, lots of changes. And, and all, all is well, all is good. I would say that the social piece, the sort of leaving the friends behind um, and moving into a new community, that's probably the hardest that I've, I've experienced. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes it gets harder as we get older too, doesn't it? it because we get so set in our ways and we're looking for th- certain things. It's hard. Absolutely. And I think too, I, I have a home, like I work, we're a virtual organization. And so I work from home. So I'm not going into an office where I would be meeting people. So that's, that's sort of uh, something that I'm managing as well. And then um, of course, with COVID, there's not a lot that's happening, you know, like there's not a lot of networking or or regular events that you would sort of meet people at. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
I think I just I just went to a workshop on this past weekend making a wreath, which was lovely. And it was it was lovely. It was really fun. And there was about 15 women there. And so that was nice. So that was the first time that I've done something like that. Nice. So Leslie, that is a big change. And I am wondering if this is something that you contemplated for a long time, pros and cons, thought about all the angst that you might go through, like, how did this happen? Or did you just jump in? Yeah. I mean, so my husband and I have been talking about moving to the island since we, we met. So Neil was originally from uh, Vancouver Island. Uh, but I never went through the process in my head of like what it would take to move. And so, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was fast because we found a, a piece of real estate that we really liked and we ended up winning the the bid. And so um, once that happened, there was a, we had about five weeks to completely coordinate what we were doing in Toronto, get it all into a truck or whatever, and get it moved across the country. And so um, it was kind of this uh, really fast, like not, not a lot of thinking. I'm, I'm lucky because my husband's a planner and so am I. So as my boss said, he goes, if there's anyone that's going to be able to move across the country easily, it's the two of you because you're project managers. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, does, it meant that there was a lot on the, the schedule between there and coming here. So, Leslie, you work in, in mental health. Your company focuses on supporting organizations uh, that prioritizes workplace mental health. I, I know that you also volunteer in, in the area. And I understand that in your 20s, you received a diagnosis of a mental health condition. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, Yeah, thank you. So in um, when I was about 27 years old, so 97, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And uh, that actually was, um, I was living in Vancouver at the time. Uh, I had finished university and wanted to move away from Toronto and move away from my parents and sort of go off on my own. And, and so came to Vancouver and, um, uh, you know, just, it was a young person who just wanted to be social and party and just have a lot of fun. And I uh, got into probably some um, drugs that I shouldn't have been doing and uh, was in a position where I became uh, very manic. So I was having a a manic episode. So bipolar disorder is usually defined by the the depression on one side and the mania on the other. And um, so my experience was with the mania and uh, I have what they call bipolar one. So the distinction there is um, psych- uh, psychosis and hallucinations are typically uh, part of the mania. And so a lot of that basically means for the individual. So for myself, I don't remember a lot of things that was happening at the time. And my, uh, my whole reality was very different. What I was perceiving was very different from the people around me. Um, I was lucky enough to have a friend who saw the differences and the changes in me and, and immediately uh, called my mom and my sister and they came out to help. Uh, at the time, I didn't even recognize them. Um, and so my mom thank goodness for her courage. Uh, She had me committed into a psychiatric ward in 1997 at St. Paul's Hospital in downtown Vancouver, which is where I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And um, so it was really challenging as a 27-year-old being diagnosed with something that's completely unknown. We didn't have understanding about it in our family. Um, And my mom was 
you know, she was just so present and so supportive and so caring the whole time. I mean, she, she, I think she probably lived in a, in a, um, <clears throat> like a travel lodge motel for maybe a month or six weeks, uh, making sure that I was okay being in the hospital and that sort of thing. So uh, it's certainly a, a challenging diagnosis and a challenging time. There's more about my story online if you want to read about it. So Leslie, was it a relief to you to get that diagnosis? Did You You must have had some sense that something was yeah, going no, on. No, I did I did not. I did not know. And I think this is part of the one of the biggest challenges with this diagnosis is um, it's uh, it's so what happens with it. it, Often there's an experience of I feel very energized. I can get a lot of things done. I'm very charismatic. I can make things happen like that's that's a lot of the experience. And then when you go into the mania or the the higher level of of um, the illness, your life just doesn't work. I mean, I was taking uh, risks with my body. I was taking risks with my mind. I was taking, I was just, I, I was living on the street thinking that that was okay. Like I know living on the street, you know, I need to go home to my bed, but for some reason I thought that this was um, mm. part of my life. And so um, I wish I could have said that I knew that something was up, but I didn't. I really had no understanding of that. And I think at the time, so back in the late 90s, you know, how we talk about mental health now and how we talk about mental health then, it was, it's very, very different. Uh, So there wasn't even awareness in terms of my family to even say, oh, maybe Leslie's having some, you know, behavioral issues or something like that. None of that was happening. It was just... Mm -hmm. So thankfully, there was a friend, there was yes. an intervention. Because if that hadn't happened, who knows what, how long this could have gone on undiagnosed. That's right. That's right. And I think that's, yeah. I mean, for me, that's, you know, the part of the passion and the commitment that I have now in my, in, in the work that I do is really bringing awareness to what are the changes that you might see in somebody so that whether you're in a workplace or in your community or in your family, you can say something like, you know, noticing that there's a difference and then hopefully making a suggestion to support. There's also a shame in, in, in having a mental illness. And did you experience that, Leslie? Or were you, when you um, kind of got better, became, you know, able to function better, did you move right into being an advocate? Or was there a period where... Nobody really knew. Yeah. Um, so between 97 and 2007, I would not tell anybody. I was so scared that I, uh, I was so embarrassed. I was so shameful about the illness. And, and to be honest, I didn't even have that awareness that I was that with the illness, um, meaning I just, mm. I just had this diagnosis and there was just no way I was going to tell anybody, period. I didn't even really think it through. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, the shame and the embarrassment can be very debilitating for those of us who have been diagnosed, uh, especially when we start looking at how is mental health portrayed in the media? How is it portrayed in movies? How is it portrayed in TV shows? And so I think we're way better now. And I would say, you know, mostly growing up, uh, with it, it's, it's this thing that people don't understand. And when you don't understand something, you're fearful of it. And so the, the idea of, you know, there's, it runs in my family. And so I have a cousin who was diagnosed before I was, but we didn't know that the families didn't even share that because of 
the level of stigma that can can occur and, and the secrecy that happens around it. And so it was it took me 10 years to get to a point where I was willing to start to start disclosing publicly about it. And Leslie, did it take you uh, a while to to become stabilized and uh, more mentally well? And during that period, did you have a career? Like, what were you doing? Yeah. So, so early, so late twenties, so 27, 28 was diagnosed, was put on medication right away. Um, I thought I could manage it still living in Vancouver. I couldn't, my life was a mess and none of nothing was working. I couldn't work. Uh, So my parents said, why don't you come home to Toronto? And so reluctantly I did. And uh, thank goodness my parents were there to house me. Uh, and so I think I probably took about six months to a year to really um, you know, sort of lean into this is a diagnosis. There's certain things that I need to take care of around my medication, seeing a psychotherapist, having these kinds of conversations and really starting to learn about what it means to live with a mental health illness. And I would, I would describe that time for me as very depressed. So I went from this very... Um, energetic, outgoing to a very closed down, insular type of person, which wasn't my typical personality. Mm-hmm. And so um, it wasn't necessarily diagnosed as depression, but certainly there's after the highs, there's usually lows. And so this was a time when it was low and my whole life had changed. I no longer had my independence. I didn't have you know finances and all of those things. So mm-hmm. thank goodness for my parents. Um, my mom uh, so amazing. She found something called the Mood Disorder Association of Ontario, which happened to be down at the corner of Young and Eglinton for us. And uh, so she started volunteering there. And by her volunteering, she started learning about my illness. And so hmm. um, it's really moving to me, you know, because my mom, she passed in 2020. But the amount of support that she gave me and the amount of knowledge that she created for herself meant she came home to me and she would say things like, you know, Leslie, you're not alone, which was, I think the majority of the feelings, like the isolation and the aloneness. And of course, I don't have any role models in my life at that point who have bipolar disorder or who have lived through something like that. And so hmm. um, it, it took me a while to get get my bearing with it in some ways. And I mean, I'm not even sure that I'm 100% there after I think we're at 24, 25 years at this point. Um, but I, I, it does, it does take time. And it's possible to be okay with your illness and to be living with your illness and actually working with your illness and having a marriage and having a mortgage and having children like there's all these amazing things that can come out of it. Um, and uh, what I learned on very, very early on was take your medication. Don't stop taking your medication. Mm -hmm. Those of us with with bipolar disorder often feel like take medication. Oh, I feel better. And then I'll stop medication. And this is something that I learned. I don't know how or why, but really early on that it is not advisable to stop medication if you're feeling well. It also sounds, Leslie, like you became very aware during that time and are still aware right now of the importance of a support 
network. Like your, sounds like your mom was amazing. Was the rest of your family as supportive as well? So my sister, incredibly supportive, her husband, my brother-in-law, very, very supportive. I would say that my dad had more challenges with it. I, I think he had challenges, generally speaking, with people who were ill. So it, I don't think it was anything to do with me necessarily, but I just, I think, you know, he had a mom who was in a wheelchair his whole life and he took care of her. And so, so my dad was a little less uh, on board at the beginning, I suppose. Um, and, you know, within, when, when I started doing some uh, self-development work and I started realizing what the illness meant, I also realized that I could have a conversation with my dad about this. And I remember one day he and I were sitting uh, together outside and we were talking, he had been talking about uh, Alcoholics Anonymous with me, and uh, he's now passed. And so I'll just say that for folks who may be in AA. Um, he, uh, he said to me, you know, I'd rather be an alcoholic than have a mental illness, which is an interesting perspective. And, and at that time, I was able to receive his perspective without any sort of judgment around it. It's, um, it's something that until you've gone through this, I don't think anyone has any understanding of what it's actually like. Um, and so whether it's depression, anxiety, bipolar disor disorder, schizophrenia, I mean, they're all very, very challenging and they come with their own um, story around them, I suppose. But it's, um, yeah, so uh, family, I would say, is a big, big, big support. Leslie, just listening to you, the amount of resilience and strength that you would have had to pull yourself, you know, you know, kind of it's those every day facing and then, you know, moving on, as you say, getting a job, a you know, a relationship, a marriage. And, um, you know, that's, that's hard work. And having had a recent mental health diagnosis, diagnosis, how did you move through those changes in your life, you know, from a young woman entering into relationships, pursuing your career and managing your mental health condition. Yeah. I mean, so what was easy at the beginning was to pretend that it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So in the first 10 years, so 27 to 37, I was working, I, I ended up uh, part, doing part-time work. Of course, my mom said, don't go full-time, you know, the recommendations, which she learned was just go part-time and, and build up to your ability to get back to work full-time. Um, but I, as by the time I was working full time, it was it, it it was this this little thing that I put over here that you know I was being responsible in my mind. I was being responsible because I took my medication and I did my blood work. That was the only thing that I was responsible for regarding my mental health. And so um, once I started talking about my mental health publicly, I realized for myself there was something more to be responsible about about regarding my mental health, meaning it wasn't just medication and seeing a doctor in terms of treatment. It was support. It was the food that I ate. It was the sleep that I, that I make sure that I'm on a, a really uh, structured schedule for sleep. It's the exercise that I do on an ongoing basis, even the perspective that I'm holding. So watching my mind and my thoughts about the conversation that I'm having if something's going on, how negative am I going? And is there a way for me to flip the negative conversation into something more positive? And so, and then of course the, the treatment and for me, the treatment was medication and psychotherapy. And so all of those things I didn't know in the first 10 years, I thought I could get away with it's medication and my doctor and I'm going to be silent about this. 
But it wasn't until I started talking about it that I realized I got to be more responsible for my mental health if I'm going to be speaking about it. And you've described, you know, to me, what you've just described is self-care and Mm -hmm. self-care is being kind to yourself. And you've, you've obviously changed how you've cared for yourself. Are you, are you changing now the things that you're doing to care for yourself? Are you continuing to evolve and change some of those routines and practices? Yeah. I mean, I, I think at the beginning it was very foundational, basic level. So food, sleep, exercise, treatment, perspective. Um, now it's okay. So what, what am I reading? What am I, what am I watching on TV? What am I learning about? How much am I meditating? How much am I going into, into nature and getting connected to, you know, I'm so privileged to be living on this Vancouver Island. I got to tell you the nature here is over the top. Mm-hmm. So there's, so I think, I think for everyone, it's, it's a unique formula, number one. So don't take my formula. Number two, I believe in what I've seen over my trajectory of my life is my self-care changes based on what's going on in my life. So as an example of that, my with both my parents passing away in the last two years, my dad passed in October 2019 and my mom passed in October 2020, um, there was a huge amount of grief and still, still grief uh, that I'm working through. And that meant that I actually needed to contract and make smaller my commitments. So I needed to feed myself and eat and sleep. And then for me, work was important. And so I kept doing work. But the, the everything else around that really came very, very close. And, and I think this is the thing, the, the level, to me, there's something directly correlated with uh, an individual's level of awareness and their ability to take care of themselves. And while you may not know exactly what you need, you'll know that you'll need something. And so what I realized at work was I needed something, which was I needed to pull back from doing client-facing meetings, and I needed to pull back from doing trainings or facilitated sessions because the vulnerability and the, um, the heartache that I was experiencing with the grief, um, was it felt like a really wide open wound that mm-hmm. anything that somebody said to me that I normally would be fine with got very tapped in and triggered in some ways. So, so absolutely, self-care must change based on your circumstances and what you're going through. And there's likely things that people do on an ongoing basis that usually work. So, hmm. so it sounds to me, Leslie, that you have become very wise about, <laughs> about uh, living with, uh, with your diagnosis. I guess if you were giving advice to people about how to uh, become, how to gather that wisdom, how, was mm. it intuition? Was it, were you experimenting? Were you, because you're right, there's so much self-awareness involved with this, but I'm interested because it sounds like you've become very wise about Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that I haven't had an episode since my original episode. And so um, you know, my doctor plays with this idea that maybe my diagnosis should be removed from my file in some ways, which is really interesting to me, but I don't know that that's ever going to happen. Um, I would say that the awareness piece, 
when I started understanding the impact that I have on other people and, and where, where I can shift and change things regarding that impact, meaning like if I show up and I haven't had sleep and I haven't eaten, you're not going to get the best out of me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a general, you know, blanket statement for most people. So then layer on top of mental health diagnosis, like the, I, I think, so you asked, where does the wisdom come from? I would say I had role models for sure. I had individuals in my life, especially through the Mood Disorder Association of Ontario. There's one woman, uh, she's now passed. Karen Lieberman was an incredible mentor to me. She had me understand, number one, it's good to share your story, but number two, share your story with value, meaning make sure that the individuals who are in the room can walk away and actually implement something right away that's valuable. And so she really gave me this sort of seed of, you know, when I started talking about my, my own story, it was very exciting for me because there was something that I could talk about and it was very scary, but I, I found there was a lot of good, I was getting a lot of good feedback about it. When Karen gave me that piece of, that little beautiful little seed of advice to make sure that there's, it's more than just your story. Um, that had me started to think, how can I take the leadership work that I do, the coaching work that I do, how can I layer that on top of what I'm actually doing? And so she, I think she, thanks for asking me that, because I don't think I've ever articulated this out loud, but I think what she did for me was she had me see that it's not just telling your story, it's making sure there's value at the same time. And so what does that value mean? And how can I bring something that I've learned about myself as a strategy to, to the conversations? And so, um, you know, lesliebennett.ca, my blog has a lot of sort of older writing about the different strategies that I've used over the years to support myself around my mental health. But I think that that's, that's probably where it came from. So I had an opportunity to do some self-development on one hand, and then Karen was really integral in terms of how I thought about the way in which I communicated about my mental health. You know, Leslie, it's so important, isn't it? Our stories are, are really a way for us to connect, but it is that next step about, you know, what can people do to implement? And so for any of our listeners today that might also have a diagnosis of a mental health condition and they're going through change, um, what do you, th what, what would you recommend that they consider as mm -hmm. they're working through this? What's that value piece to them? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would also say this probably applies for any family members that are seeing this as well. Ah, yes. you know, cause, cause yes. we, I, I think every single person right now has experienced some sort of mental health, something yes. or rather, whether or not they've been diagnosed with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, always on the top list is compassion, have compassion for yourself. So mm -hmm. I, I wasn't necessarily a high performer, although I was very excited and I wanted to do things. And so I had to really slow myself down to be able to be able to take care of my mental health, but also do the things that I wanted to do. And so when I got too fast or too far ahead of myself, that was, I could always tell that there was, I needed to slow down. So it's, I think there's a slowing down. I think there's being aware in terms of your own needs. Um, so having the compassion for yourself, make me, making mistakes, being okay with making mistakes. I think boundaries are a really, really big, challenging topic for people. But the boundary piece for me is 
like this, it, it's really clear in the sleeping stuff and, and my need for sleep. So when I first started working for MHI, I was doing our mental health innovations. I was doing a lot of travel. We were working across the country. And so I would never take a late night flight or a really, really early morning flight. And that's because I know I need from sort of 9.30 until 6 a.m. sleep. And if I don't get that sleep, then I'm not great. And if I can't plan sleep somewhere else in the day or the next day to catch up, this this doesn't work for me. And so um, it's like, can you tap into what you need? So I knew I needed sleep. And then what's the boundary that you need to communicate potentially to your community or your, your family or your, your workplace that's going to support you in the thing that you need? So I, there's a lot here and mm. we could probably do a podcast just on boundaries, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, I think that those would be the top four or five things that I said. Mm-hmm. Well, I think those would be helpful for a broad part of the population. You know, all of that self-awareness, setting boundaries, but so much more important for people that are dealing with a mental health condition, definitely. So tell me just a little bit about how you got into your business. I'm sort of interested in that. Um, So it really was the trajectory of speaking about my mental health. So in 2007, I had an opportunity uh, to talk in front of a group of people. I was scared to death. It was absolutely the wrong thing to do in my mind. But I stood in front of about 60 people and I communicated the fact that I had been diagnosed 10 years prior with this bipolar disorder. And um, that that made uh, a sharp change in my trajectory of my career. Hmm. I then got to the point where I thought, okay, I want to make a difference in organizations. I want workplaces. I want people in workplaces to be thriving, whether or not they have a mental illness, but especially if they have an experience with something. Um, and how can, how can that be possible? And so it took me from 2007 to about 2014 to really solidify that. But the the trajectory of that was um, I became an executive coach. So I started working with individuals who have a mental health diagnosis. So me having a mental health diagnosis meant that I was a bit of a peer in that relationship, but mostly it was coaching. I also saw that in the the Canadian um, mental health, uh, uh, um, mental health healthcare, the industry itself, that there was no accountability process to hold people accountable to what it was that they were going to do around their recovery in the, in the mental health space. And so I thought this coaching opportunity would be great and I could support people there. That was exquisite and I loved it. And I love coaching and I still coach folks, um, uh, which brought me to a place of going to a, a conference in 2014. Uh, it was the first uh, national peer support conference in Canada. Peer support is something that's very um, associated with uh, mental health, so peer support for mental health. And uh, there was, I think, about 500 people in the room, and 75% of them all have lived experience, all are peer supporters supporting other people in the community or wherever they are um, around other people's uh, mental health. And so Stefan Grenier was the chair at the time of the, con- the conference. I met him, and uh, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. So, Leslie, you took a risk in terms of change. You took a risk and you were authentic and it resulted in positive change. It's a strong, strong message right there. Um, And thanks for saying that because, you know, I've been living with it now for uh, being out 
for quite a few years. And I, and I forget that piece, Mm -hmm. but early on when I started talking about my mental health and I would meet with, uh, you know, other consultants or professionals or networking, and I would say what I was doing, I would often get that, that piece of the authentic living your purpose, having that commitment. And it doesn't even occur to me as work. I mean, honestly, this is, I am so privileged to do what I do. I have, it's so profound for me that I get to support workplaces to have individuals who are going through struggle or adversity to ensure that they have the support that they need. And more than just that EAP or the manager in HR. I mean, this is, this is groundbreaking social support uh, phenomenon that really makes the difference because all of a sudden we are, there's no power differential between us, Mm -hmm. right? The only thing that's different is I'm a little bit further along in my recovery than you are. That's the only difference between us. We're both human. We're both experiencing this. And is there a way for people to experience peer support in the workplace so that people aren't lost between doctor's appointments or trying to find a doctor? So thank you, uh, Peggy, for saying that, because I think that the authentic, vulnerable place is is often a message that you hear out there in the world, be authentic, be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it can be risky to, to be that. And so I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a blanket statement. Everyone who has a mental health diagnosis, go and talk about it publicly. I'm not sure that that is, uh, that's a safe thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be right for the person. The right conditions are in place. Um, but it, it is a liberating thing to take this shameful diagnosis illness and remove it from my personality or my identity and it's just this thing that I have. And I can talk about bipolar disorder just like I talk about having a cold or a broken leg or green eyes or <laughs> whatever the thing is. So, Leslie, this has been remarkable. Uh, you know, I, for one, and I know Peggy feels the same. We're just so grateful that you've joined us today. And I can't imagine how many people must be grateful that you took that risk. <laughs> that many years ago and that you've you've got the um you know the mental health innovations and we're going to put all of this we'll put links onto our website and uh you know we'll refer to the blog but it's just been an absolute pleasure to get to know you and hear a bit about your story very inspiring thank you so much great to be here if you've learned just one thing about change while listening to this podcast please subscribe on apple or spotify and share with a friend. This episode recorded via Zoom audio. Producers Peggy Kanick and Catherine Griba. Executive producer Kanick Leadership Advisory. Theme music La Pompeii, written by Chris Harrington, music publisher Invato Market. For information on this podcast and to purchase some fabulous goat merchandise, please visit www.getyourgoat.ca.